Our focus is on verses 8 and 9 this morning as we continue our series through 1 Peter. And my question this morning that I want to begin with is why does Peter tell these people what they are experiencing? It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you're believing in him, you greatly rejoice. That's another thing you're doing. With joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he tells them what they are experiencing. You are loving Christ and you are believing in Christ and you are rejoicing in Christ, even though you haven't seen him. And in all of this and through all of this, you're obtaining Salvation. Now, why does he talk like that? Why does he tell them what they are experiencing as though they didn't know what they were experiencing? Why do you tell somebody what they are experiencing? If you write a letter, you tell them what you're experiencing. You don't write letters to people to tell them what they're experiencing, right? The Bible is different from us in many ways, and that's one of them. And here's my answer to the question. I think Peter does this because he wants them to know what true Christianity really is so that if they begin to drift away from it, there will have been presented to them a standard described in terms of their own experience that they will be able to to look back on to see what they have drifted away from. When I was thinking of it that way, I got a picture in my mind that helped me to get a handle on why you would talk this way to somebody. Christianity is the swimming in a river of godlessness against the stream and you swim with the stroke of love to Jesus and faith in Jesus and joy in Jesus. And that's the stroke of your swimming against this stream of Christlessness in American culture that if you stop swimming will take you straight to the cataracts of judgment. And the coach, swimming coach, Peter, is on the side on the bank of the river. And he he notices this good stroke that they have. Love, faith, joy. Love, faith, joy. And he says, hey, look over here. And he takes a big flag called 1 Peter 1.8. And he says, look at this. This is where you are. And he plants it right there on the shore. Now, watch this, he says, because if you stop swimming, if you don't take the stroke of faith and the stroke of joy and the stroke of love to Christ, this current you live in that surrounds you, it's the air you breathe of Christless American or wherever they are culture, it's going to take you backward. I think that's what he's doing here. And that's what I want to do this morning. I think I'll be faithful to this text if I wave the banner of First uh, Peter 1.8, plant it right here and say to any of you, are you looking at this from downstream? Are you looking at it dead on? Good. Keep stroking. If you're looking at it from downstream, wake up. 
And I hope you can hear me because the noise of that cataract will sooner or later drown out the noise of every gospel preacher if you get close enough to it and it'll be too late. I think that's what's happening in describing to them their own experience. Five things in this text. I won't talk about all of them in detail, but let me just point them out. They're very simple. You could all get them yourself. I hope you will get them right now out of the text. Number one, they are loving Christ. This is true Christianity we're talking about now. The simple, plain, mere, true Christianity. They are loving Christ. That's number one. Number two, they are believing in Christ. Number three, they are rejoicing in Christ. Four, they are in and through this obtaining the salvation of their souls. And five, they don't see Christ. All this is happening even though they don't see Christ. Those are the five elements that I see. So true Christianity is the process of the soul being saved through love to Christ, faith in Christ, and joy in Christ in spite of not seeing Christ. That's true Christianity. Now, let's try to get inside these these three things, love, faith and joy. How do they relate to each other? What are they? We, we use these terms in this reality so often that I don't think we pause to just meditate on what is love to Christ? What is faith in Christ? What is joy in Christ? How can it happen without seeing him? Nobody in this room has ever seen Jesus. And yet every one of us, if we're saved, have some measure of love to him and faith in him and joy in him. Well, let's talk about it. First, some definitions. Here's my effort to get a definition of loving Christ. Loving Christ means experiencing Christ as precious for all of his character and virtue. Say it again. Loving him means experiencing him as precious. I'm getting this from chapter two, verse seven. To those who believe Christ is precious. Experiencing him as precious for all of his character and virtue, for what he is. I'll come back to that in a minute. Let me try to define what trusting or believing Christ is. Trusting Christ means experiencing Christ as reliable for all that he promises and counsels. Trusting Christ is experiencing him as reliable, perfectly reliable for all that he has promised or for all of his counsel. When you trust someone, you can't pick and choose and say, I trust you when you promise things. I don't trust you when you give advice. No, 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 no. That will compliment them not at all. They will be deeply offended. They will be alienated from you. And so will Christ. If you say to him, I trust your promises. I don't like your advice about how to do my sex. Then he won't have you because you're not having him. So faith. Trusting in Jesus 
is experiencing him as a reliable sex counselor. As a reliable promise giver about eternity in heaven and hell. And how to get there. So there you have two definitions. Love is being attracted to the preciousness of Christ for who he is. And faith or trust is relying on or banking on the reliability of Christ for what he does and says. Now, third, how does joy in Christ relate to those two things? We could talk so much about how those two things relate, but I'm going to leave them just beside each other there. And you can reflect this afternoon. Is there any overlap between faith and love? That's worth a lot of thought. But let's just talk about joy and how it relates to those two, because that's going to link us up with the rest of what's in this verse. Here's my definition of of the rejoicing that is in this verse eight. Joy in Christ, rejoicing in Christ is the deep good feeling. Now, I stick the word deep on there because people always go after me if I don't insist on it deep because they say, oh, there's a difference between happiness and joy. I say, okay, okay. I mean the deep thing. I mean the deep thing. The strong thing. We just sang a song and it said, in gladness and in woe, rejoice. Whatever you, whatever that is, in woe, rejoice. That's what I'm talking about, okay? The deep thing. So the deep good feelings in loving him and believing in him. Joy in Christ is the deep good feeling of believing in him as reliable and loving him as precious. Now, notice my definition makes joy a part of love and a part of faith, not a third thing. Now, that's real important. I want you to I want to try to persuade you of that, because I think that has massive implications for how you live your life and how you think about joy and how you think about faith and how you think about love and how you think about Christianity and what it means to be a Christian. I just think there's a lot of superficial stuff going on in the church that's not Christianity. Because people have picked this stuff all apart and laid it way out there on the borders of life. And in here they've got this thing called decision or whatever that they did one time. And they come to church and none of this is going on. None of this love thing with precious Jesus and none of this bank your hope trust thing on the reliable Jesus. And none of this good deep feeling thing in love and in faith, that's all, well, it's just feeling and experience and we're not an experience or feeling-oriented people. It's not. It's the cake. It's not the icing. Now, let me try to persuade you of, of that. Joy, I am arguing, is a part of love and a part of faith because it would be a contradiction Wouldn't it, I'm appealing to your thought now, wouldn't it be a contradiction to say, I am attracted to the preciousness of Christ, but I have no good feelings in this attraction. Now, I'm not saying there isn't more than good feeling. 
you might anticipate as part of this attraction that you will find an Aslan kind of lion. And you remember, remember, what was her name? Lucy? Words. Uh, He's not safe, but he's good. You might have to be crucified in order to love Christ. He who would come after me, let him take up his electric chair and die and follow me. But but if there's no good feeling in it, it's not attraction, it's rejection. If in seeing the preciousness of Christ, there is no deep, yes, you are beautiful, to be with you would satisfy my longings. If that's not a good feeling, it's nothing. Joy is the good feeling of being attracted to the preciousness of Christ, even if it costs you your life. That's my definition of joy in relation to to love. Now, I think the same thing is true of faith. Would be a contradiction, wouldn't it? To say, I am confidently trusting in what Christ will do for me, but I have no good feelings in this confidence. I am confidently trusting, I have hope, I have assurance in what Christ has said and will do for me, but I have no good feelings about that. That's just double talk to to say that feelings are something other than genuine Heartfelt faith. It's more. Please don't misunderstand me. Faith is more than feeling. It's got strong intellectual component to it. It's strong conviction of the mind. But if it isn't a relying upon the Lord with a sense that he'll care for me and he'll carry me through everything in life, he'll bring me to glory, he'll get me over all the humps. And if that has no good feeling about him in it, it's not faith. I just don't buy it. Faith has a component of a good, deep feeling for this great Christ in which we trust. I don't call it trust and confidence if there is none of that there. So I conclude that attraction to the ultimate preciousness of Christ, which we call love, and confidence in the ultimate reliability of Christ, which we call faith, has this component of joy in them. Joy is the deep, good feeling of being attracted to Christ as precious and relying upon Christ as trustworthy and reliable. And those three things together, loving Christ, trusting Christ, and in those two things, enjoying Christ, are Christianity. That is Christianity. And notice, we haven't said one word about doing anything yet. Just massive change in here. And if it isn't there, it isn't Christianity. To love him, to trust him, to enjoy him in loving him and trusting him, is Christianity, and your life will take care of itself. Your sex will take care of itself. Your money will take care of itself. All your lifestyle options will take care of themselves. If you fall in love with Jesus like I'm talking about and Peter's talking about, and if you trust him as reliable both as promiser and counselor, money counselor, sex counselor, lifestyle counselor, 
if you trust him and love him, we're talking inner reality now before any performance whatsoever, you will be new and you will be a Christian. Now, the reason I have approached this text this way, trying to get at the inner reality of faith and love and joy is because I want to understand inexpressible and full of glory. See the phrase there at the end of verse eight? You rejoice in this faith and love. You rejoice with a joy that is unable to be expressed and which is literally, the word is glorified. Translated full of glory here in the NASB. Now, I think the way we have defined joy goes a long way to helping us understand why it's inexpressible and why it is glorified. Are you with me? Are you ahead of me? I hope you're ahead of me. I hope some of you are ahead of me. You could finish the sermon for me here. I'll ask this question to make the connection for you. Where does joy get its moral quality? Not just its intensity. We're talking about quality here. Inexpressible and glorified. Not just big. Not just strong. There can be a lot of strong emotions without Jesus. But we're talking here a joy that is not only very great, but it has a glory dimension to it. It's got glory on it, in it, somehow. Where does joy, let's ask the general question, where does joy, your joy, get its moral dimension? And the answer to that question, I believe, is your joy gets its moral quality from what you are enjoying. So, if you enjoy dirty jokes... You've got dirty joy and a dirty heart. If you enjoy bathroom language, that really makes you laugh. Or lewd pictures, that really makes you happy. You have a dirty heart and dirty joy. Joy gets its moral quality from what you enjoy. Or if you enjoy cruelty and arrogance and revenge. And there are a lot of movies and TV programs that cultivate that kind of joy to get you to be real happy in the revenge. <clears throat> oh, that felt good. That's, that's dirty. That's the kind of heart you get. Your heart will be shaped. You become what you crave. Where you get your joy... You get your moral dimension to joy. Or if you just love things, if you find your life, your joy increasingly happy in more and more material things, you know what happens inside? You die. Your heart was made for God and love and faith and joy. And if you find, if you find this computer just so satisfies me that I have tasted that. Wow. <laughs> Computers are incredible. Dan Lane got me this new America Online thing, which connects you up with, you know, 10 million billboards and, and stuff. It is absolutely addicting, at least for a week or two. It is. There's great danger from, from I mean, you just name it. There are 10,000 material things in the world that can so enamor you and capture you and you come to the end of a day off at the screen of this computer 
I'm dead. I'm dead. Deader than I was when I started this day. I'm smaller. I'm drier. What have I done? (laughs) And some people have been their whole lives like that. And they will say that on their deathbed. Unless they're so dead they can't feel it. We're made for joy and Christ and relationship and love and the big unseen realities. So my answer to the question, where does joy get its moral component? It gets its moral component from the thing enjoyed. Now, back to where we are. Christian joy, I would argue then, is inexpressible and glorified because... The Christ who is precious to us is inexpressibly precious. And the Christ who is reliable to us is inexpressibly reliable. And even though we never attain to the maximum joy we will have someday in this life, nevertheless, our joy is hooked in, it's tied in to an inexpressible treasure. Jesus, He is inexpressibly glorious. He is inexpressibly beautiful and reliable and precious. And if your joy is in Him, that preciousness, that inexpressibility comes from the thing enjoyed into you and your joy leaps up from time to time with inexpressibility. And the same thing now with glory. I believe Peter calls our joy glorified. Now, some take this as only future here. And they say Peter's looking into the future when we will be glorified in heaven. That, I I don't think that's true because the participle obtaining or receiving here is a present participle. And as hard as I've tried to agree with some of my favorite commentators on this, I cannot. I think he is saying that in the process of loving and believing and rejoicing, the goal of that namely salvation, is happening in part, in measure now. Namely, the glory of the one we love is precious and the one we trust is reliable is streaming back through our joy into our hearts and our joy is in measure right now glorious. It partakes in glory because you always participate in what you enjoy. You become what you crave in large measure. Final question. How can all of this happen when we don't see him? Twice he says that. Isn't that interesting? Though you have not seen him, you uh, love him. And now, though you do not see him believing, you rejoice in him. Why does he stress that twice? Evidently, some people were saying something like, but we've never seen him. You saw him, Peter. Sure, you you. You can have that kind of joy, but we've never seen him. Some people, I mean, obviously most weren't because he's saying you are rejoicing without seeing him. Now, how? Surely the answer is there is a seeing with the heart that is not a seeing with the eyes. That I want to argue this morning in closing is more important than seeing with the eyes. More important than seeing with the eyes is seeing with the heart. I'll try to persuade you of that in these last few minutes. Paul said that his mission to unreached peoples in Romans 15:20 was this. Listen to this. These are people now out there in the Roman Empire who, like us, have never seen Jesus. I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, but as it is written, 
they who had no news shall see him. And they who have not heard shall understand. The preaching of the gospel is the means by which those who have never seen Christ see Christ in the gospel. Here's another way of saying it that Paul has in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In your heart, the light of God goes on and you see his glory in Christ's face. What in the world is that? There were hundreds and hundreds of people who saw Jesus during his lifetime on the earth who did not see him. They didn't see him. They were blanked out. They were totally confused. They were totally adrift. They didn't know who this Jewish carpenter rabbi was. He made no sense to them whatsoever. And they saw him hour after hour after hour. Is that valuable? That sends to hell. Don't exalt seeing with the eyes. Don't begrudge that you live in the 20th century with only a Bible. I want to listen carefully now. We're almost done and this is really crucial. We were at a Michael Card concert on Friday night and uh, he sings this song about childlikeness that captures this paradox of seeing and not seeing. Listen, to hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way I cannot see. That's what faith must be. There is a seeing with soul or the heart that is not a seeing with the eyes. And it happens through the word of God in the gospel. And it happens through the reading of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. When you read those gospels and oh, I commend the gospels to you. Read the Gospels day in and day out. They are the living Christ to you. Read them with an openness to Christ and you will see him better than Nicodemus saw him, better than the Syrophoenician woman saw him, better than the centurion saw him, better than the widow of Nain saw him, better than the thief on the cross saw him, better than the thronging crowds who've got snatches and pieces saw him. Think about this in closing. Think. The Gospels are better than being there. I wonder if you believe that this morning. Here's my reason. The Gospels are better than being there. Why? In the Gospels, you are welcomed into the inner circle where you never could have gone with the apostles had you been there. In the Gospels, you can go with him to Gethsemane, where you couldn't have gone. In the Gospels, you go to him with the trial, where you couldn't have gone. In the Gospels, you go all the way through the crucifixion. In the Gospels, you go in and out of the tomb with him. In the Gospels, you are with him with every meeting after the resurrection. In the Gospels, you hear 
whole sermons, not just little snatches and pieces, because you were way back there in the back of the crowd and there's a baby crying beside you and you couldn't figure out what was going on up there and you only heard, blessed are the blah, blah, blah. What was that? And you couldn't hear it. You got the whole thing. And not only do you have the whole big sermons and big discourses, you've got them with God-inspired contexts to give them interpretations which those poor peasants didn't have a clue about. They didn't know what was going on. You see him in his freedom from anxiety as he has no place to lay his head. You see his courage in the face of opposition. You see his unanswerable wisdom when he's peppered with questions. You see him honoring women and his tenderness with children and his compassion towards lepers and his meekness in suffering and his patience with Peter and his tears over Jerusalem and his blessing on those who cursed him and his heart for the nations and his love for the glory of God and his simplicity and his devotion and his power to still storms and heal sicknesses and drive out demons. They didn't have a clue compared to what you have. The Gospels are better than being there. If the Holy Spirit, who was needed just as much in that day as now, will simply open your eyes to see the glory on his face. That's my effort this morning to say, here's the flag. This is true Christianity we've been talking about. Love to Christ because He's precious. Trust in Christ because He's reliable as promiser and counselor. And joy in Christ through loving Him and trusting Him. All leading to salvation without even having seen Him with these eyes, but only these. Let's pray. Lord, Take us now and do it. Holy Spirit, do it. There are people in this room who do not yet experience what I'm talking about. I plead with you, Father, right now. Move on them. Bring them to humble themselves, to believe, to love, to enjoy. Because they see the glory of God in the face of Christ. In his name we pray, and all the people said, Amen.